0: Alright, so in today's episode, we're going to be looking at America's rise to globalism. So, in it's a time period from 1927 up to 1945, we're going to be looking at here. So, in assuming control colonial control over the Philippines, Americans acquired an interest in the Western Pacific. So, the outbreak of World War II had its roots in the aftermath of World War I. So many of the victorious as well as the defeated nations resented the peace terms adopted at Versailles. Over the next two decades, Germany, the Soviet Union, Italy, Poland, Japan, they all wanted to achieve on their own what the Allied leaders had denied them during the negotiations. War debts imposed at Versailles stunted Germany's economy. Germany struggled to recover during the Great Depression, as did the rest of Europe. Fascists take the greatest re- advantage of this instability. The philosophy and movement had its roots in Italy where nationalists under Benito Mussolini gained powers in the 1920s preaching the idea of the nation as an organic community. Individuals meant little compared with the needs of the nation and war kept the country going and strong and served the collective interests. Adolf Hitler and his Nazis, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, they went further when they assumed control of Germany in 1933. The effort to avoid entanglements did not mean the U.S. could simply ignore events abroad. And assuming colonial control over the Philippines, Americans had created a potentially dangerous rivalry with Japan over the Western Pacific. So, also had the American commitment to uphold China's territorial integrity. It's set out in the Open Door Policy from 1900. With rival Chinese warlords fighting among themselves, Japan takes the opportunity to capture overseas raw materials and markets. In 1931, Japanese agents, they staged an explosion on a rail line in Manchuria. And this act provided an excuse for Japan to occupy the entire province. A year later, converted Manchuria uh, will fall into a puppet state of Japan called Manchukuo. And here is going to be a direct threat to the Versailles system, the Stimson Doctrine. So neither the major powers in Europe nor the U.S. was willing to risk a war with Japan over China. President Hoover would allow Secretary of State Henry Stimson only to protest that the U.S. would refuse to recognize Japan's takeover of Manchuria as legal. So this policy of non-recognition becomes known as the Stimson Doctrine, even though Stimson himself doubled its worth. And he's right to be skeptical. Three weeks later, Japan's Imperial Navy will shell the port city of Shanghai trying to expand their influence in China. Growing tensions in Asia and Europe give the U.S. an incentive to try and improve relations with nations closer to home. So by the late 1920s, the U.S. had intervened in Latin America so often that the Roosevelt corollary was an embarrassment. Slowly, however, American administrations were beginning to moderate these high-handed policies. In 1927, When Mexico confiscated American-owned properties, President Coolidge sends an ambassador rather than the Marines to settle the dispute. In 1933, when critics compared the American position in Nicaragua to Japan's in Manchuria, Secretary Stimson will order U.S. troops to withdraw. And these gestures lay the roots of a good neighbor policy. And FDR pushes this good neighbor idea. So, at the 7th Pan-American Conference in 1933, his administration will accept a resolution denying any country the right to intervene in the internal or external affairs of another. The following year, he's going to negotiate a treaty with Cuba that renounces the American right to intervene under the Platt Amendment. So, henceforth, the U.S. would replace direct military presence. The, they're replacing it with indirect economic influence, them. So as the threat of war is increasing during the 1930s, Latin American countries prove more willing to cooperate with the U.S. in matters of common defense. Roosevelt, the first American president to visit Argentina, opens the Pan-American Conference in 1936 by declaring that outside aggressors would find a hemisphere wholly prepared to consult together for our mutual safety and our mutual good. Given that the peace settlement ending World War I closed many worldwide markets to Germany, Adolf Hitler campaigned to increase German access to South American markets and increase political influence as well. In vain, though, by the end of 1940, every Latin American country but Argentina had signed defense agreements with the U.S. And that's going to prove important later because after the war, there's a lot of Germans and former Nazis that flee and immigrate to Argentina and South America, and that's because they're the only country that did not sign a defense agreement with the U.S. Alright, so... During the 1920s, Benito Mussolini, he had appealed to Italian nationalism and fears of communism to try and gain power in Italy. Spinning his dreams of a new Roman Empire, Mussolini embodies the rising force of fascism. And so, his fascists, known as the Fasci de, de Combattimento, they use terrorism and murder to create an all-embracing single-party state, outside which no human or spiritual values can exist, let alone be desirable, is what he's saying. Italian fascists reject the liberal belief in political parties in favor of a glorified nation-state dominated by the middle class, small business people, and small farmers. On March fifth, 1933, one day after the inauguration of FDR, the German legislature will grant Adolf Hitler dictatorial powers in Germany. And riding on a wave of anti communism, fanatical patriotism, and and anti Semitism, Hitler's Nazi party trumpets some similar fascist ideals, looking to unite all Germans in a greater Third Reich. A week earlier, when the League of Nations condemns Japan for its attacks on China, the Japanese just withdraw from the League. Its militarist leaders are very intent on carving out Japan's own empire, which they call the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. The global rise of fascism and militarism is bringing the the world closer and closer to war. As much as the FDR wants the U.S. to resist aggression, he finds the countries reluctant to follow. For every step the president takes toward internationalism, the Great Depression forces him home again. Programs to revive the economy, gain broad support. Efforts to resolve crises abroad provoke a lot of opposition. The move to non-involvement in world affairs gains in 1935 after Senator Gerald Nye of North Dakota holds hearings on the role of bankers and munitions makers in World War One. And so the committee revealed that these merchants of death... He's calling them, had made enormous profits during World War I. The committee report implied but couldn't prove that business interests had even steered the country into war, into World War I. So, roused by the Nine Committee hearings, Congress debates a proposal to prohibit the sale of arms to all belligerents in time of war. Internationalists argue that an embargo should apply only to aggressor nations. Otherwise, aggressors could strike when they're better armed than their victims. The president, internationalists suggested, should use the embargo selectively. Isolationists, however, have the votes they needed. The Neutrality Act of 1935 requires an impartial embargo of arms to all belligerents. The president had authority only to determine when a state of war existed. So the limitations of formal neutrality become immediately apparent. In October of 1935, Mussolini orders Italian forces into the North African country of Ethiopia. Against tanks and planes, the Athenian troops fight back with spears and flintlock rifles. So immediately, FDR is going to invoke neutrality in hopes of depriving Italy of war goods. Unfortunately for FDR, Italy didn't need arms, but oil, steel, copper. These are materials that are not included under the Neutrality Act. So when Secretary of State Cordell Hull calls for a moral embargo on such goods, the depression-starved American businesses ship them anyway. With no effective opposition from the League of Nations or the U.S., Mussolini quickly will complete his conquest. In a second Neutrality Act, Congress will add a ban on loans or credits to all belligerents. In July of 1936, Generalissimo Francisco Franco in Spain, he's made bold by Hitler's success. He's going to lead a rebellion against the newly elected Popular Front government in Spain. Hitler and Mussolini will send... Supplies, weapons, and troops to Franco's fascists, while the Soviet Union and Mexico will aid the left-leaning government. Americans are very sharply divided over whom to support. FDR refuses to become involved. So lacking vital support, the Spanish Republic will fall to Franco in 1939. In Congress, they're seeking a way to allow American trade to continue without drawing the country into war. So under these new cash-and-carry provisions in the Neutrality Act in 1937, belligerents can buy supplies rather than munitions, but they would have to pay beforehand and ship the supplies on their own ships. If war spread, these terms favored the British, whose navy could better ensure their, their supplies would reach England. But the policy of cash and carry hurts China in 1937 when the Japanese forces push into their southern regions. In order to give China continued access to American goods, FDR refused to invoke the neutrality act it would have cut off trade with both countries japan had by far the greater volume of trade with the us so since the president lacked the freedom to impose a selective embargo he could only condemn the invasion from japan all right so in 1937 the three aggressor nations germany italy and japan will sign the anti-comintern pact On the face of it, the Pact pledged them only to ally against the Soviet Union, but the agreement created this Rome-Berlin-Tokyo axis that provoked a lot of growing fear of wider war. FDR groped for some way to try and contain these axis powers, so delivering in October his first foreign policy speech in 14 months. Seeming to favor collective action, he calls for an international quarantine of aggressor nations. Although most newspapers applaud his remarks, the American public remains skeptical fdr remains cautious about matching words with deeds in europe the nazi menace continues to grow as german troops march into austria in 1938 yet another violation of the versailles treaty hitler then insists that the three and a half million ethnic germans in the sudetenland of czechoslovakia should be brought into the reich with germany threatening to invade the country the leaders of france and britain flew to munich in september of 1938 where they will struck a deal strike a deal to try and appease Hitler. Czechoslovakia would give up the Sudetenland in return for German pledges to seek no more territory in Europe. When British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain returns to England, he tells the cheering crowds that the Munich pact would bring peace in our time. Six months later, in open contempt for the European democracies, Hitler takes over over the remainder of Czechoslovakia. And so nothing happens. Appeasement becomes synonymous with betrayal and weakness and surrender. And by 1939, Hitler makes a very little secret that he intends to recapture territory. Germany had lost to Poland after World War I. What then would the Soviet Union do? Right? So if Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin joined the Western powers, Hitler might be blocked, but Stalin, who is coveting, Eastern Poland suspects that the West hoped to turn Hitler against the Soviet Union. So on August 24, 1939, uh, Russia and Germany shocked the world when they announced a non aggression pact. Their secret protocols free Hitler to invade Poland without fear of Soviet opposition, and in turn, Stalin could extend his western borders by bringing Eastern Poland, the Baltic states of Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, And parts of Romania and Finland into the Soviet sphere. So on September 1st, 1939, German tanks and troops will surge into Poland. Within days, France and England will declare war on Germany. Stalin quickly moves into eastern Poland, where German and Russian tanks took just three weeks to crush the Polish cavalry. As Hitler consolidates his hold on Eastern Europe, Stalin will invade Finland. Once spring arrives in 1940, Hitler's moving to protect his sea lanes by capturing Denmark and Norway. Soon after, German panzer divisions will be supported by air power that cut through Belgium and Holland in a blitzkrieg. This is also, this is German for lightning war, is what it means. So the low countries will fall in 23 days. It gives the Germans a route to France. By May, a third of a million British and French troops had been driven back onto the Atlantic beaches of Dunkirk. You may remember this from that film that came out a few years back, Dunkirk. And there was only a very strenuous rescue effort staged by the Royal Navy and a big group of yachts and fishing boats by the business and sailors, businessmen and sailors. They managed to ferry all these uh, soldiers across the channel to England and safety. And so with the British and French routed and out of the way, the German forces are able to march onto Paris. So with France gone, only Great Britain stands between Hitler and the United States. If the Nazis defeated the British fleet, what would stop the Atlantic Ocean from becoming a gateway to the Americas for the Germans? So suddenly... Isolationism seems very dangerous. FDR abandons impartiality in favor of just outright aid to the Allies. So FDR proposes a scheme to lease, lend, or otherwise dispose of arms and supplies to countries whose defense is vital to the U.S. That meant sending supplies to Britain on the dubious premise that they would be returned when the war ended. And almost every day since England and Germany had gone to war, FDR and Winston Churchill have been exchanging phone calls, letters, or cables. Now FDR and Churchill will draw up the Atlantic Charter. This is a statement of principles that the two nations hold in common. The Charter condemns Nazi tyranny and will embrace the four freedoms. Freedom of speech and expression. Freedom of worship. Freedom from want. And freedom from fear. So preoccupied by the fear of German victory in Europe. FDR seeks to avoid a showdown with Japan. The Navy, the president tells his cabinet, doesn't have enough ships to go around. Every little episode in the Pacific means fewer ships in the Atlantic. But precisely because American and European European attention lives elsewhere, Japan is emboldened to expand militarily into Southeast Asia. So by the summer of 1941, Japanese forces control the Chinese coast in all major cities. When its army marches into French Indochina, which is now modern-day Vietnam, In July, Japan is going to stand ready to conquer all of the Southeast Asia Peninsula and the very oil-rich Dutch East Indies. So, FDR embargoes trade, freezes Japanese assets in American banks, and bar shipments of vital scrap iron and petroleum. Japanese leaders indicate kind of a willingness to negotiate with the U.S., but diplomats from both sides are only going through the motions. Japan demands that its conquest be recognized, the U.S. insists that Japan withdraw from China and renounce the Tripartite pact with Germany and Italy. That's what that alliance between the three countries was known as, Tripartite pact. So as these negotiations are sputtering on, the Japanese are secretly preparing an attack on American positions in Guam, the Philippines, and Hawaii. In late November, American intelligence located and then lost a Japanese armada as it was leaving Japan. And so, observing strict radio silence, the six carriers and their escorts steam across the North Pacific. On Sunday morning, December 7th, 1941, that day which will live in infamy, right? The first wave of Japanese planes will roar down on the Pacific fleet, lying at anchor in Pearl Harbor on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. For more than an hour, the Japanese pound the ships in nearby airfields. Altogether, 19 ships are sunk or battered. Practically all of the 200 American aircraft are damaged or destroyed. Only the aircraft carriers, because they have been sent to reinforce Midway and Wake Island, will escape the worst naval defeat in American history. Later that day, the Japanese did attack the Philippines, along with Guam, Midway, and British forces in Hong Kong and the Malay Peninsula. On December 8th, FDR declares it a day which will live in infamy. Three days later, Hitler declares war on the U.S. and Italy will follow suit. So we are at war now, folks. So the strategies for war. Within two weeks, Churchill is in Washington meeting with FDR to coordinate production schedules for ships, planes, and armaments. The numbers they announce are so large, a lot of critics openly laugh. At first. A year later, the combined British, Canadian, and American production boards not only met, but exceeded those schedules. So they're like, we're not just going to war You want war, you got it. We are preparing for outright total war and we're going to make sure we win. So outraged by the attack on Pearl Harbor, many Americans thought Japan should be the war's primary target, but the two leaders agreed Germany poses the greater threat. The Pacific war they decided would be fought as a holding action while the allies were concentrating on Europe. So in a global war, arms and resources, you got to allocate them and divvy them out very carefully, right? So by summer's end in 1942, the Allies face defeat. The Nazis are right outside Soviet Union's three major cities of Leningrad, Moscow, and Stalingrad. In North Africa, General Erwin Rommel sweeps into Egypt with his Africa Corps to stand within striking distance of the Suez Canal. It's a lifeline to the resources of the British Empire. German U-boats in the North Atlantic threaten to sever the ocean link between the U.S. and Britain. In the Far East, the Japanese Navy destroyed most of the Allied fleet in the Western Pacific during the Battle of Java Sea. General Douglas MacArthur, he's commander of the American forces in the Philippines, escapes to Australia in April of 1942. He vows to return, though. The very ill-equipped American and Philippine troops left on Bataan and Corregidor put up a heroic but very doomed struggle. By the summer, there's no significant Allied forces that stand between the Japanese and India, or Australia. So it's looking not so good folks with the Pacific campaign. All right. So we are at war. So the early defeats, uh, do kind of cloud or obscure a lot of the allies strengths. Main among them were the human resources of the Soviet union and the productive capacity of the United States safe from the fighting. American farms and factories can produce enough food and munitions to supply two separate wars at once. By the end of the war, American industry had turned out vast quantities of airplanes, ships, artillery pieces, tanks, and self propelled guns, as well as 47 million tons of ammunition. The Allies benefit, too, from having very exceptional leadership. The big three, Joseph Stalin, Winston Churchill, and FDR, are able to maintain a unity of purpose that eludes the Axis leaders. So, all three understand the global nature of war. To a remarkable degree, they managed to set aside their many differences in pursuit of a common goal, and that is the defeat of Nazi Germany. At the war's height, 50 countries are among the Allies who refer to themselves as the United Nations. So, to be sure, each nation had its own needs. Russian forces faced 3.5 million Axis troops along a 1,600-mile front in Eastern Europe. To ease the pressure on those troops, Stalin repeatedly called upon the Allies to open a second front in Western Europe. So urgent are his demands that one Allied diplomat remarked that Stalin's foreign minister knew only four words in English. Yes, no, and second front. But Churchill and FDR felt compelled to turn Stalin down. After an initial surge of anger, Stalin accepted Churchill's rationale for a substitute action. That was to be a British-American invasion of North Africa at the end of 1942. Codenamed Operation Torch, the North African campaign would bring British and American troops into direct combat with the Germans and stood an excellent chance of succeeding. Here is an example of how personal contact among the Big Three ensured the Allied cooperation. The Allies. The alliance did sometimes bend a little, but it never broke. So despite the decision to defeat Germany first, the Allies' earliest successes actually come in the Pacific. At the Battle of Coral Sea in May of 1942, planes from American aircraft carriers stop a large Japanese invading force headed for Port Moresby in New Guinea. For the first time in history, two fleets fight each other without seeing each other. <laughs> the age of naval is arriving here it had arrived to extend japan's defenses the japanese military ordered the capture of midway a small island west of hawaii the americans having decoded the secret japanese messages are ready so on june 3rd as the japanese main fleet bears down on midway american planes will sink four enemy carriers a cruiser and three destroyers the battle of midway here breaks the japanese naval supremacy in the pacific and it stalls their offensive So, in August of 1942, American forces go on the offensive in the Solomon Islands, east of New Guinea. With the landing of American Marines on the island of Guadalcanal, the Allies start on the bloody road to Japan and victory. So, by the end, or by the fall of 1942, Allied fortunes had kind of brightened in the European War. In Egypt at El Alamein, British forces under General Bernard Montgomery break through Rommel's lines. Weeks later, the Allies launch Operation Torch, the invasion of North Africa. Under the command of General Dwight D. Eisenhower, Allied forces swept eastward through Morocco and Algeria. They will be halted in February 1943 at the Kasserim Pass in Tunisia, but General George S. Patton regroups them and masterminds an impressive string of victories. By May of 1943, Rommel have fled from North Africa, leaving behind 300,000 German troops. So the success in North Africa provides a stirring complement to the dogged Russian stand at Stalingrad against a very vast German army. But despite huge losses, Stalin's forces go on the offensive, moving south and west through Ru- Ukraine toward Poland and Romania. So let's take a look at the army here. Mobilizing for war brings together Americans from all regions, classes, and ethnic backgrounds. More than any other social institution, the Army acts as a melting pot. It also offers educational opportunities and job skills. In waging the world's first global war, the U.S. armed forces sweep millions of Americans into new worlds and experiences. In 1941, the Army had 1.6 million men in uniform. By 1945, it had more than 7 million. The Navy, 3.9 million. The Army Air Corps, which is later going to be the Air Force, 2.3 million. And the Marines were at 600,000. At basic training, recruits are subjected to forms of regimentation. You know, that Army haircut, foul-mouthed drill sergeants, the barracks life. They had seldom experienced in other areas of the democratic culture in America. So in this war, as in most, the infantry bears the brunt of the fighting and dying they will suffer 90% of battlefield casualties. So in all, almost 400,000 Americans died and more than 600,000 were wounded. But service in the military did not mean constant combat. Most battles were reasonably short, followed by long periods of waiting and preparation. The army used almost 2 million soldiers just to remove supplies. Yet even during the Lolan battle, the soldiers' biggest enemy was disease it constantly stalked him. so looking at malaria dysentery typhus even plague in the pacific theater the thermometer temperature right it's going to rise sometimes over to over 100 to 10, 110 degrees fahrenheit folks it would be helpful if i could talk it right, right all right so let's look at minorities at war so, minorities enlist in unusually large numbers because the service offers training and opportunities unavailable to them in civilian life. Still, prejudice in the ranks remains high. The Army is very strictly segregated and generally assigned black soldiers to non-combat roles. The Navy accepts them only as cooks and servants, and at first the Air Corps and the Marines would not take them at all. The American Red Cross even keeps black and white blood plasma separated as if there were a difference. And ironically, it was actually a black physician, Charles Drew, that had invented the process allowing plasma to be stored. Go figure, right? Despite all this prejudice, more than a million black men and women will serve. As the war progressed, leaders of the black community pressure the military to ease segregation and allow black soldiers a more active role. The army did form some black combat units, usually led by white officers, as well as a black air corps unit. By mid-1942, black officers began to graduate from integrated officer candidate schools at the rate of 200 a month. More than 80 black pilots will win the Distinguished Flying Cross as well during the war. And for both Mexican-Americans and Asian-Americans, the war offers an opportunity to enter the American mainstream. Putting on a uniform is an essential act of citizenship. Mexican-Americans had a higher enlistment rate than the population in general. Chinese-Americans serve at the highest rate of all minority groups. Korean Americans are especially valuable in the Pacific theater because many of them can translate Japanese. Filipino Americans, they jump at the chance to fight for liberation of their homeland from Japanese invaders. Their loyalty will have its rewards. Filipinos that volunteered became citizens. The California attorney general is going to reinterpret laws that had once prevented Filipinos from owning land. Now they can buy their own farms. Jobs are going to open in war factories. The status of Mexican-Americans and other Asian-Americans are going to improve in similar ways. And some people are like, what about some other groups, right? So let's look at, you know, the LGBT community. Homosexuals that wish to join the military, they face a dilemma. Would their sexual orientation be discovered during the screening process? If they're rejected and word got back to their parents or communities, would they be stigmatized? Many of them take that chance anyway. Those who did pass the screening test find themselves in gender segregated bases where life in an overwhelmingly male or female environment allow many for the first time in their lives to meet like-minded gay men and women. And let's look at women. So World War II brings an end to the military as being a solely male enclave that women enter only as nurses, Right. During the pre-war mobilization, Eleanor Roosevelt and other women had campaigned for a regular military organization for women. The War Department comes up with a compromise that allowed women to join the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, W.A.A.C., but only with inferior status and lower pay. By 1943, the auxiliary had dropped out of the title, and so the W.A.A.C.s became the W.A.C.s, the W.A.C.s with full status equal ranks and equal pay the navy will have a similar force known as the waves and women can look with a mixture of pride and resentment on their wartime military service thousands serve close to the battlefields working as technicians mechanics radio operators postal clerks secretaries although filling a vital need these are largely traditional female jobs that implied a separate and inferior status Until 1944, women were prevented by law from serving in war zones, even as non-combatants. There were women pilots, but they were restricted to shuttling planes behind the lines. These are the WASPs, the Women Air Service Pilots. At many posts, Waves and WACs live behind barbed wire and can move about only in groups under armed escort. So that's looking at how some of the groups during the war did, how they fared. Okay, so mobilizing for war. So the demand for war materials creates numerous production bottlenecks. To end them, the president in 1943 made Supreme Court Justice James F. Burns the dictator kind of this economy needs. So his authority as director of the new Office of War Mobilization, the OWM, is so great and his access to FDR so direct that he becomes known as the assistant president. By assuming control over vital materials like steel, aluminum, and copper, the OWM is able to allocate all of these materials more systematically. Americans learn to do without new cars and Sunday drives. Soon, all those bottlenecks in the quotas disappeared. Especially crucial, industries large and small convert their factories to turning out war materials. The big three automakers being Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler, they generate some 20% of all war goods because auto factories just get retooled to make tanks and planes. You know, they already had the assembly lines. They already have the capacity to mass produce these things. It's very easy for them to just do it. And there was a manufacturer of model trains, for example, that made bomb fuses. You know, small businesses start to play a very vital role. War production also creates these new industrial centers, especially in the West. When production peaked in 1944, the aircraft industry had 2.1 million workers producing almost 100,000 planes most of the new plants are going to be located around Los Angeles, San Diego, and Seattle. The demand for work opened a lot of opportunities for many Asian workers that have been limited to jobs within their own ethnic communities. By 1943, 15% of all shipyard workers around San Francisco are Chinese. The government relies on large firms like Ford and GM because they have the experience with large-scale production, so war contracts help Large corporations increased their dominance over the economy. Workers in companies with more than 100,000 employees amounted to just 13% of the workforce in 1939. By 1944, they make up more than 30%. In agriculture, a similar move toward uh, bigness occurred. So the number of people working on farms dropped by a fifth, yet productivity increased 30%. Because these small farms, they were consolidated into larger ones that relied on more machinery and artificial fertilizers, fertilizers to increase their crop output. So productivity increases for a less tangible reason. Pride in the work done for a common cause. Civilians volunteer for civil defense, hospitals, and countless scrap drives. Children become Uncle Sam's scrappers and tin can kernels. You know, they're scouring vacant lots for valuable trash. Backyard victory gardens add about 8 million tons of food to the harvest in 1943. Carpooling conserves millions of tires. Citizens are putting off buying new consumer goods, so they help to limit inflation. Morale runs high because people believe that every contribution, no matter how small, helps defeat the axis. And science and technology is going to start playing a role. So new technologies transform the way Americans fight. This global war. So, at the battles of Coral Sea and Midway, the Navy was using radar gunnery and airplanes to spot and sink the enemy ships. Applied mathematics and game theory helped the Navy find and destroy U boats that preyed on Allied shipping. Elsewhere, improved fighter planes and long range bombers allowed the Allied air forces to take the war to the Axis homelands. As a result, the idea of a front line lost its meaning. So in their quest to preserve democratic freedom, scientists began exploring some of the basic forces of nature. Generals and admirals understood all too well that the fortunes of battle could turn on the weather. So with the Navy's support, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, good old MIT, they created a professional program in meteorology. And it was there that scientists were applying principles of physics to better understand climate patterns. Meteorology and other fields of geophysics provide the military with information on the winds, ocean currents, tides, and weather in these very far-flung theaters of war. So these efforts lay the foundation for future understanding of climate science. There's no scientific quest that does more to alter the relationship between humans and the natural world than was the effort to build the atomic bomb. In 1938, German scientists discovered the process of nuclear fission. Atoms from uranium-235, it's a radioactive material. When they're split, it releases enormous energy. So leading physicists, many of them which have been refugees from European fascism, they understand that a fast fission reaction might be used to build a bomb. So in 1939, Albert Einstein, Enrico Fermi, and Leo Szilard they warned FDR that the Germans might well be on the way to creating a weapon, the use of which might determine the outcome of the war. Being concerned, justifiably so, FDR authorizes an enormous research and development effort codenamed the Manhattan Project. More than 100,000 scientists, engineers, technicians, and support staff from Canada, England, and the U.S. are all going to be working at 39 different installations To build an atomic bomb. But even as they spend over 2 billion dollars in their quests. Scientists were still fearing the Germans might succeed before they did. But this isn't the only scientific advancements that are taking place. So applied science is not simply about destruction. Production matters as well. So with so many farmers off at war. Increased agricultural productivity becomes vital. In the 1930s, plant geneticists had learned to cross-pollinate corn to create new varieties. These hybrids greatly increased the yields per acre. Plastics offer an alternative to natural materials like glass, rubber, wood, steel, and copper. These are in very short supply because of the war effort. So, for example, commercial production of polyvinyl chloride, PVC, begins kind of modestly in 1933. And given its stability and flexibility, PVC is ideal for use in construction, plumbing, packaging, and flooring. By 1941, 120 million pounds of PVC are being manufactured annually. Some scientific advances increase health and life expectancy. Antibiotics had their first widespread application during the war. Infectious diseases such as tuberculosis, syphilis, and pneumonia, once which have been just the scourge of armies constantly following and dogging them, right? They can now be contained. Pesticides, such as DDT, controlled insects that spread malaria, typhus, and other deadly and debilitating diseases. With the use of these chemicals, the health of the nation actually improved. Life expectancy increased during the 1940s, an average of three years overall, and by five years for African Americans. Infant mortality falls by a third overall. So the atomic bomb DDT, PVC, hybrid seeds, they come to represent for Americans... Humankind's ability to control nature. But those discoveries also pose dangers to the environment, right? Atomic bombs spew radiation clouds into the atmosphere. DDT controls insect pests, but it kills beneficial insects and proves very harmful to wildlife. Polyvinyl chloride production gives off carcinogens that are very dangerous to humans. Many of these substances exist nowhere in nature, and once they're discarded, take ever to degrade the widespread use of hybrid seeds creates uh created through artificial pollination a greatly reduced genetic variety scientists anticipated some of these dangers but at the time they had a war win so they're not as concerned with it really okay so war work and prosperity so not only did war production end the depression it revived prosperity unemployment which was at almost 7 million in 1940 virtually disappeared by 1944 jeff davies president of the hobos of america reported in 1942 that two million of his members are off the road employers very eager to overcome the labor shortage welcome workers with disabilities people with hearing impairments find jobs in the factories with the very high noises that are rather deafening right uh Little people, dwarves, right? They become aircraft inspectors because they can crawl inside wings and other cramped spaces. By the summer of 1943, nearly 3 million children aged 12 to 17 are working. When the war ends, average income had jumped to nearly $3,000, twice what it had been in 1939. And this wartime prosperity brings about some substantial gains for unions. But still, the tensions between business and labor that marked the New Deal era continue. In 1941 alone, more than 2 million workers walked off their jobs in protest. To end the labor strife, FDR is going to establish the War Labor Board in 1942. So like the similar agency Woodrow Wilson had created during World War I, the new WLB had authority to impose an arbitration in a labor dispute. Despite the WLB, dissatisfied railroad workers in 1943 will tie up the rail lines in a wildcat strike. So, to break the impasse, the government's going to seize the railroads and then grant wage increases. That same year, John L. Lewis is going to allow his United Mine workers to go on strike. FDR seizes the mines and runs them for a time. He even considers arresting union leaders and drafting striking miners. In the end, the government will negotiate a settlement that gives the miners some substantial new benefits, however. So, most Americans are less for- willing to forgive. Lewis and his miners. There's a huge coal shortage along the East Coast, and it leaves these homes dark and cold. So in reaction, Congress easily will pass the Smith-Connolly Act of 1943. It gives the president more authority to seize vital war plants shut down by strikes and requires union leaders to observe a 30-day cooling-off period before going on strike. Despite all these incidents, most workers remain very dedicated to the war effort. Stoppages account for only about one-tenth of one percent of the total work time during the war. So when workers did strike, it was usually in defiance of their union leadership, and they left their jobs just for a few days. Women workers, all right, talking about Rosie the Riveter. Everybody loves that image conjured up by World War One, right? You see the woman in her overalls with that denim shirt she's packing the gun. She's wearing that, you know, red with the polka dot. You know, she's still got that ounce of femininity, you know, with the polka dot bandana, but she's a strong, tough woman, right? We can do it. So with as many as 12 million men in uniform, women, especially married women become the nation's largest untapped source of labor. During the high unemployment years of the Depression, both government and business had discouraged women from competing with men for jobs. Now, Magazines and government bulletins start trumpeting the vast resource of women power. Having accounted for a quarter of all workers in 1940, women amount to more than a third by 1945. These women are were not mostly young and single, like female workers of the past have been. A majority are either married or between 55 and 64 years old, right? That's not typically what we think of with wartime women labor, right? With husbands off at war, millions of women are preferring the relative freedom of work and the additional income it provided. Black women in particular realize dramatic gains in the quality of jobs available to them. Once concentrated in very low-paying domestic and farm jobs with pretty erratic hours, tedious labor, there's going to be around 300,000 that rush into factories that offer higher pay and more regular hours. Whether black or white, working women face some new stresses. The demands of a job are added to their domestic responsibilities. So, the pressures of moving and crowded housing tear at families and communities already fearful for their men at war. So, despite the new work roles for women, the war did not create a revolution in attitudes about gender. Right. Most Americans assumed that when the war ended, veterans would pick up their old jobs and women would return home. Surveys showed that the vast majority of Americans, male and female, continued to believe that child rearing was a woman's primary responsibility. The birth rate, which had fallen during the Depression, began to rise by 1943 as prosperity had returned. So war industries attract workers from places near and far. Vine Deloria Jr., he's an American Indian, recalled that the war dispersed the reservation people as nothing ever had. Every day it seemed we could be bidding farewell to families as they headed west to work in defense plants on the coast. African Americans left the South in such large numbers that cotton growers began to buy mechanical harvesters to replace their labor. The Census Bureau discovered that between Pearl Harbor in 1941 and March 1945, at least 15.3 million people, not counting those in military service, had changed their county of residence. So people are moving all over the place. You got to find out where the work actually is and go there. When World War II began, there was about 600,000 Italian aliens and 5 million Italian Americans that lived in the United States. Most still lived in Italian neighborhoods that revolved around churches, fraternal organizations, and clubs. Some had been proud of Mussolini and even supported fascism. Those attitudes changed abruptly after World War after Pearl Harbor, sorry. During the war, Italian Americans unquestionably pledged their loyalties to the United States. At first, the government treated Italians without citizenship, along with Japanese and Germans, as aliens of enemy nationality. They could not travel without permission, enter strategic areas, or possess shortwave radios, guns, or maps. By 1942, few Americans believed that German or Italian Americans posed any kind of danger. Very eager to keep the support of Italian voters in the 1942 congressional elections, FDR chooses Columbus Day 1942 to lift the restrictions on Italian aliens. Americans showed no such tolerance toward the 127,000 Japanese living in the U.S., whether they were aliens or citizens. Ironically, prejudice against them was lowest in Hawaii, where the war with Japan had begun. Newspapers there expressed confidence in the loyalty of Japanese Americans because their labor is crucial to Hawaii's economy. On the mainland, Japanese Americans remained more segregated from the mainstream of American life. State laws and local custom often threw up some pretty complex barriers. In the western states where they were concentrated around urban areas, most Japanese Americans could not vote on land or live in decent neighborhoods. Approximately 47,000 Japanese aliens, known as Issei, I-S-S-E-I, were ineligible for citizenship under American law. Only their children, Nisai, N-I-S-E-I, could become citizens. Despite these restrictions, some Japanese achieved success in small businesses like landscaping, while many others worked on or owned farms that supply fruit and vegetables to the growing cities. West Coast politicians pressed the FDR administration to evacuate the Japanese from their communities. It did not seem to matter that about 80,000 Nisai were American citizens and not, not one was ever convicted of espionage. In response to the War Department in February 1942, they will draw up the infamous Executive Order 9066. This allowed the exclusion of any person from designated military areas. Under DeWitt's authority, the order is going to be applied only on the West Coast against Japanese Americans. By late February, FDR had agreed that both Isai and Isai would be evacuated. But where would they go? The army began to ship the entire Japanese community to temporary assembly centers. Most Nisai were forced to sell their property at far below market value. Furthermore, many army sites did not offer basic sanitation, comfort, or privacy. Eventually, most Japanese were interned in in 10 camps in remote areas of seven western states. No claim of humane intent could change the reality. These are concentration camps, folks. Internees were held in wire-enclosed compounds by armed guards. Tar-papered barracks housed families or small groups in single rooms. Each room had a few cots, maybe some blankets, maybe one single light bulb, and that was their home. Some Japanese Americans protested loudly when government officials asked the Nisei citizens if they would be willing to serve in the armed forces. Thousands of Nisei did enlist, and many did distinguish themselves in combat, despite this treatment of them. The concentration camps in America, they did not mirror the horror of the Nazi death camps, but they are built on racism and fear. Even worse, they violate the traditions of civil rights and liberties for which Americans believe they were fighting. All right, let's take a look at minorities and war work. So minority leaders saw the irony of fighting a war for freedom in a country where civil rights were still limited. Labor leader A. Philip Randolph, who was long an advocate of greater black militancy, he launched a campaign to gain entrance to jobs in defense industries and government agencies, unions, and the armed forces, all of which are segregated. In 1941, he's going to begin to organize a march on Washington. FDR could have issued executive orders to integrate the government, like Randolph demanded, but it took the threat of the march to make him act. So FDR is going to issue Executive Order 8802, which forbid discrimination by race in hiring either government or defense industry workers. To carry out the policy of the Order 8802, it's going to establish the Fair Employment Practices Committee, the FEPC. But in a society that's still deeply divided by racial prejudice, the new agency had only limited success in breaking down barriers against African Americans and Hispanics. But still, the FEPC did open industrial jobs in California shipyards and aircraft factories, which previously refused to hire Hispanics. Thousands have migrated from Texas, where job discrimination was the most severe, to California, where war work created new opportunities. Labor shortages led the southwestern states to join with the Mexican government under specially arranged contracts. In Texas, in contrast, antagonism to Braceros ran so deep that the Mexican government tried to prevent workers from going there. It wasn't until late 1943 that the FPC investigated the situation. Black Americans faced some similar situations, frustrations and situations. More than half of all defense jobs were closed to minorities. For example, 100,000 skilled and high-paying jobs in the aircraft industry, blacks held only about 200 janitorial positions. Unions even segregated the black workers or excluded them entirely. Eventually, the combination of labor shortages, pressures from black leaders, and an initiative from government agencies opened the door to more skilled jobs and higher pay. Beginning in 1943, the United States Employment Service rejected requests with racial stipulations. By 1944, blacks, who accounted for almost 10% of the population, held 8% of the jobs. But there's some urban unrest going on, y'all. So yeah, at the beginning of the war, three-fourths of the 12 million black Americans lived in the South. Hispanic Americans, whose population exceeded a million, were concentrated in a belt along the U.S.-Mexican border. When jobs for minorities opened in war centers, African and Hispanic Americans became increasingly urban. So to ease crowding and reduce racial tensions, the government funded new housing. In Detroit, federal authorities picked a site for minority housing along the edge of a Polish neighborhood. One project named in honor in honor of the black abolitionist Sojourner Truth, included 200 units for black families. When the first of them tried to move in, local officials had to send the National Guard to protect the newcomers from some very menacing KKK members. Riots broke out in the hot summer of 1943 as white mobs are going to be beating up African Americans, riding public trolleys, or patronizing movie theaters. Black protesters loot white stores. 6,000 soldiers from nearby bases finally imposed a troubled calm, but it wasn't before the riot had claimed the lives of 24 black and nine white residents that this happened. And there are also the Zoot Suit Riots. It's not just a song, y'all. It really happened. So in Southern California, Anglo hostility towards Latinos focused on pachucos or Zoot Suiters. These young Hispanic men had adopted the stylish fashions of the Harlem hipsters. You know, the greased hair swept back into a ducktail broad-shouldered, long-waisted suit coats, baggy pants pegged at the ankles. The L.A. City Council passed an ordinance, making it a crime even to wear a zoot suit. In June of 1943, sailors from the local Navy base, at uh, San Diego we're talking about here, invaded Hispanic neighborhoods in search of zooters who had allegedly attacked servicemen. The self-appointed vigilantes grabbed innocent victims, tore their clothes, cut their hair, and beat them. When Hispanics retaliated, the police arrested them, ignoring the actions of the sailors. Irresponsible newspaper coverage made the matters worse. Underlying Hispanic anger are the grim realities of poor housing, unemployment, and white racism. It added up to a level of poverty that wartime prosperity eased, but in no way resolved. Minority leaders acting on the legal, or they're going to be acting on the legal as well as the economic front. So the Congress of Racial Equality. Court. This is a nonviolent civil rights group inspired by the Indian leader Mohandas Gandhi. They use sit-ins sit-ins and other peaceful tactics to desegregate some restaurants and movie theaters. So they're already kind of starting the civil rights movement here, y'all. In 1944, the Supreme Court is gonna outlaw the all-white primary. It's a very infamous device used by Southerners to exclude blacks from voting in primary elections within the Democratic Party. In Smith versus Allwright, which is 1944, the court ruled that since political parties are integral parts of public elections, they could not deny minorities the right to vote in primaries. These new attitudes opened the door for future civil rights gains. So we're making headway, y'all. It's coming. <clears throat> so after Pearl Harbor, FDR told reporters that Dr. New Deal had retired in, doc- in favor of Dr. Win the War. Is what he's calling it. Political debates, however, could not be eliminated even during global conflict. The growing anti-New Deal coalition of Republicans and rural Democrats saw in the war an opportunity to attack programs they had long resented. They quickly end the Civilian Conservation Corps and the National Youth Administration, reduced the powers of the Farm Security Administration, and block moves to extend Social Security and unemployment benefits. By the spring of 1944, No one knew whether FDR would seek an unprecedented fourth term. He has very pallid skin, sagging shoulders, shaking hands. They kind of seem open signs that he's aged too much. He's too old to run. He will be victorious over Thomas Dewey, but his margin of victory was smaller than any since 1916. So, after pushing the Germans out of North Africa in May of 1943, Allied strategists agreed to Churchill's plan to drive Italy from the war. Late in July, two weeks after a quarter of a million British and American troops had landed on Sicily, Mussolini fled to German-held northern Italy. Although Italy surrendered early in September, Germany continued to pour in reinforcements. It took the Allies almost a year of bloody fighting to finally reach Rome. And at the end of the campaign, they still had yet to break the German lines. Along the Eastern Front, Soviet Army steadily pushed the Germans out of Russia and back towards Berlin. General Dwight D. Eisenhower, fresh from battle in North Africa and the Mediterranean, he took command of the Allied preparations for Operation Overlord, the long-awaited opening of a second front in Western Europe. By June 1944, all eyes are focused on the coast of France because Hitler, of course, knew the Allies would attack across the English Channel. The Allied planners did their best to focus his attention on Calais, the French port city that is actually closest to the British Isles. On the morning of June 6, 1944, the invasion began. But not at Calais. It's actually on the less fortified beaches of Normandy. Almost 3 million men, 11,000 aircraft, and more than 2,000 vessels took part in D-Day. Luck and Eisenhower's meticulous planning favored the Allied cause. Convinced that Calais was the Allied target, Hitler delayed sending in two reserve divisions. His indecision allowed the Allied forces to secure a foothold. Still, the Allied advance from Normandy took almost two months, not several weeks as expected. Once Allied tanks break through German lines, their progress was spectacular. In August, Paris was liberated, and by mid-September, the Allies had driven the Germans from France and Belgium. Hitler's desperate counterthrust in the Ardennes Forest in December 1944 succeeded momentarily, pushing back the Allies along a 50 mile bulge. But the Battle of the Bulge cost the Germans their last reserves. After General George Patton's forces rescued trapped American units, little stands between the Allies and Berlin. The road to Tokyo. Alright, so in the bleak days of 1942, General Douglas MacArthur, he's flamboyant and jaunty with his dark sunglasses and corncob pipe, trying to kind of stir up an image here. He had emerged as America's great military hero. MacArthur believed that the future of America lay in the Far East. The Pacific Theater and his forces, he argued, should have top priority, not Europe. In March 1943, the combined chiefs of staff agreed to his plan for a westward advance along the northern coast of New Guinea, toward the Philippines and Tokyo. Naval forces directed by Admiral Chester Nimitz used amphibious warfare to pursue a second line of attack along the island chains of the Central Pacific. American submarines were able to cut off Japan's supply lines. By July 1944, the Navy's leapfrogging campaign reached the Mariana Islands, east of the Philippines. From there... B-29 bombers bombers were within range of the Japanese home islands. As a result, Admiral Nimitz proposed bypassing the Philippines in favor of a direct attack on Formosa, which is present-day Taiwan. MacArthur insisted on fulfilling a promise he had made to the Filipinos that the Americans would return. FDR himself came to Hawaii to resolve the impasse, giving MacArthur the green light. Backed by more than 100 ships of the Pacific Fleet, General MacArthur splashed ashore on the island of Leyte in October of 1944. The decision to invade the Philippines led to savage fighting until the war ended. As the retreating Japanese armies left Manila Bay, they tortured and slaughtered tens of thousands of Filipino civilians. The U.S. suffered 62,000 casualties, redeeming MacArthur's pledge, but a spectacular U.S. Navy victory at the Battle of Lake Gulf spelled the end of the Japanese Imperial Navy as being a legitimate fighting force. MacArthur and Nimitz then prepared to tighten the noose around Japan's home islands. Alright, so the Big Three Diplomacy. Cooperation of the post-war priests proved even naughtier than planning strategies for war. Churchill believed that only a stable European balance of power, not an international agency, could preserve the peace. In his view, the Soviet Union is the greatest threat to upset that balance of power. Premier Joseph Stalin left no doubt that an expansive notion of Russian security defined his war aims. For future protection, Stalin expected to annex the Baltic states, once had been Russian provinces, along with some bits of Finland and Romania and about half of pre-war Poland. In Eastern Europe and other border areas like Iran, Korea, and Turkey, he wanted friendly neighbors it soon became apparent that friendly meant regimes that would be dependent on Moscow. Early on, FDR had promoted his own version of an international balance of power, which he called the Four Policemen. Under its framework, the Soviet Union, Great Britain, the U.S., and China would guarantee peace through military cooperation. But by 1944, FDR is seeking to an alternative to this scheme and to Churchill's wish to return to a balance of power that hemmed in the Russians. He preferred to bring the Soviet Union into a peacekeeping system based on an international organization similar to the League of Nations. But this time, all the great powers would participate, including the U.S. Whether Churchill and Stalin or the American people as a whole would accept the idea wasn't yet clear. So the role to Yalta. The outlines and the problems of a post-war settlement emerged during several summit conferences among the Allied leaders, In November of 1943, with Italy's surrender in hand and the war against Germany going well, Churchill and FDR agreed to make a hazardous trip to Tehran, Iran. There, the big three leaders met together for the first time. The president tried to charm the Soviet premier, teasing Churchill for Stalin's benefit. And Tehran proved to be the high point of cooperation among the big three. It was there that FDR and Churchill finally committed to the D-Day invasion Stalin had so long sought. Although Churchill's promise was half-hearted at best, the British hoped to delay D-Day as long as possible in order to minimize British casualties. Stalin, for his part, promised to launch a spring offensive to pin down German troops on the Eastern Front. He also reaffirmed his earlier pledge to declare war against Japan once Germany was beaten. But thorny disagreements over the post-war peace remained. That was clear in February 1945 when the Big Three met at the Russian resort city of Yalta on the Black Sea. By then... Russian, British, and American troops were closing in on Germany. FDR arrived very tired and pale. At 62, limited by his paralysis, he had quite visibly aged. He came to Yalta mindful that although Germany was all but beaten, Japan still held out in the Pacific. Under no circumstances did he want Stalin to withdraw his promises to enter the fight against Japan and join a post-war international organization. Churchill remained ever mistrustful of Soviet intentions. The Russians appeared only too eager to fill the power vacuum that a defeated Germany and Japan would leave. The allies remained most at odds about Germany's post-war future. Stalin was determined that the Germans would never invade Russia again. Many Americans shared his desire to have Germany punished and its war-making capacity eliminated. At the Tehran conference, FDR and Stalin had proposed that the Third Reich be split into five powerless parts. Churchill, however, was much less eager to bring low the nation that was most natural barrier to Russian expansion. The era after World War I, he believed, demonstrated that a healthy European economy required an industrialized Germany. The Big Three made no firm decisions. For the time being, they agreed to divide Germany into separate occupation zones. France would receive a zone carved from British and American territory, and these four powers would jointly occupy the German capital of Berlin, while the Allied Control Council supervised the national government. When the Big Three turned their attention to the Far East, Stalin held a very Trump card. Fierce Japanese resistance on the islands of Okinawa and Iwo Jima had convinced FDR that only a bloody invasion would force Japan's surrender. He thus secured a pledge from Stalin to declare war within three months of Germany's defeat. The price was high. Stalin wanted to reclaim territories that Russia had lost in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1906 as well as control over the Chinese Eastern and South Manchurian railroads. The agreements reached at Yalta depended on Stalin's willingness to cooperate, and public FDR put the base base on matters. He argued that the New World Organization, which Stalin agreed to support, by the way, would provide the greatest opportunity in all history to secure a lasting peace. So, the Yalta Conference marked one of the last and most controversial chapters of FDR's presidency. Critics charged that the concessions to Stalin were far too great. Poland had been betrayed. China sold out. The UN was crippled at the beginning. Yet, FDR gave to Stalin little that Stalin had not liberated with Russian blood and could not have taken anyway. Four out of five Nazi soldiers killed in action died on the Eastern Front against Russia. What peace FDR might have achieved can never really be known. He returned from Yalta visibly ill. On April 12, 1945, while sitting for his portrait at his vacation home in Warren Springs, Georgia, he complained of a terrible headache, then suddenly fell unconscious. Two hours later, FDR was dead. Not since the Lincoln assassination had the nation been so grieved. Under FDR's leadership, government had become a protector. The president was a father and friend. The U.S. was the leader in the struggle against Axis tyranny. As vice president, Harry Truman had learned almost nothing about the president's post-war plans. So sensing his own inadequacies, he he adopted a tough pose and made up his mind very quickly. People welcomed the new president's decisiveness as a relief from FDR's evasive style. Too often, though, Truman acted before the issues were clear, but he at least knew victory in Europe was at hand as the Allied troops swept into Germany from the east and west. The horror of war in no way prepared the invading armies for their liberation of the Nazi concentration camps. Anti-Semitism or prejudice against Jews and Judaism had a long and ugly history in the Christian Western world. It was particularly strong in Central Europe. As the allied troops discovered hitler had authorized the systematic extermination of all european jews as well as gypsies homosexuals and others considered to be deviant or inferior the ss hitler's security force they had constructed six extermination centers in poland by rail from all over europe the ss shipped jews to die in gas chambers no issue of world war ii was more starkly raised questions of human good and evil than what came to be known as the Holocaust. Tragically, the U.S. could have done more to save at least some of the 6 million Jews killed. But until the autumn of 1941, the Nazi permitted Jews to leave Europe, but few countries would accept them, including the U.S. And that's because Americans were haunted by unemployment. They feared a new tide of immigrants would make job competition worse. After 1938, the restrictive provisions of the 1924 Immigration Act were made even tighter. American Jews wanted to help, especially after 1942 when they learned of the death camps. But they worried that highly visible protests might only aggravate American anti-Semitism. They were also split over support for Zionists, working to establish a Jewish homeland in Palestine. FDR and his advisors ultimately decided that the best way to save Jews was to win the war quickly. That strategy still does not explain why the Allies did not do more. They could have bombed the rail lines to the camps sent commando forces, you know, special forces, or tried to destroy the death factories altogether, but they didn't. Late in the summer of 1944, the Allies met at Dumbarton Oaks, a Washington estate, to lay out the structure for the proposed United Nations organization, the UNO later simply known as the UN. An 11-member Security Council would oversee a general assembly composed of delegates from all member nations, By the end of the first organizational meeting held in San Francisco in April 1945, it had become clear that the UN would favor the Western powers in most post-war disputes. While the UN was organizing itself in San Francisco, the Axis powers were collapsing in Europe. As Mussolini attempted to escape to Germany, anti-fascist mobs in Italy captured and slaughtered him like a pig. Adolf Hitler committed suicide in his Berlin bunker on April 30th. Two weeks later, General Eisenhower will accept the German surrender. On the final summit meeting, held in July 1945 at Potsdam, just outside of Berlin, President Truman met Churchill and Stalin for the first time. The three leaders agreed that Germany should be occupied and demilitarized. Stalin insisted that Russia receive a million, minimum of $10 billion in reparations, regardless of how much it might hurt post-war Germany of the European economy. Complicated compromise allowed Britain and the U.S. to restrict reparations from their zones, but in large part, Stalin had his way. For the foreseeable future, Germany would remain divided into occupation zones and without a central government of its own. The issue most likely to shape post-war relations never even reached the bargaining table in Potsdam. On July 16, 1945, the Manhattan Project scientists detonated their first atomic device. Upon receiving the news in Germany, Truman seemed a changed man. Firmer, more confident. Over the spring and early summer of 1945, administration officials discussed the use of atomic weapons. A few scientists had recommended not using the bomb, or at least attempting to convince Japan to surrender by offering a demonstration of the new weapons power. A high level committee of administrators, scientists, and political and military leaders dismissed that idea. Rather than tell Stalin directly about the bomb, Truman mentioned obliquely that the U.S. possessed a weapon of awesome destructiveness. Stalin showed no surprise, most likely because spies had already informed him about the bomb. Privately, Truman and Churchill decided to drop the first bomb with only a veiled threat of inevitable and complete destruction if Japan did not surrender unconditionally. Unaware of the warning's full meaning, officials in Tokyo made no formal reply. Some historians have charged that Secretary of State James Burns, a very staunch anti-communist, believed that a combat demonstration of the bomb would shock Stalin into behaving less aggressively in post-war negotiations. Most evidence, however, indicates that Truman decided to drop the bomb in order to end the war quickly. The victory in the Pacific promised to be bloody. Military leaders estimated that an invasion of Japan would produce heavy Allied casualties. Before leaving Potsdam, Truman gave the final order for B-29s to drop two atomic bombs on Japan. On August 6th, the first leveled four square miles of the city of Hiroshima. Three days later, a second exploded over the port of Nagasaki. They had the codenames Fat Man and Little Boy. About 140,000 people died instantly in the blasts. A German priest came upon soldiers who had looked up as the bomb exploded. Their eyeballs had melted from their sockets. Tens of thousands more who had lived through the horror began to sicken and die from radiation poisoning. The two explosions left the Japanese stunned. Breaking all precedents, the Emperor intervened and declared openly for peace. On September 3rd, a very zombie, somber Japanese delegation boarded the battleship Missouri and Tokyo Bay to sign the document of surrender. And World War II had ended. The defeatism of the depression gave way to the exhilaration of victory. Before the war, Americans seldom exerted leadership in international affairs. After it, the war looked to the US, the world looked to the US to rebuild the economies of Europe and Asia and to maintain peace. Not only had World War II shown the global interdependence of economic and political systems, but it had also increased that interdependence. Out of the war developed a truly international economy. At home, The economy became more centralized, the role of government larger. Still, a number of fears loomed. Would the inevitable cutbacks in military spending bring on another depression? Would devastation in Europe and Asia produce the conditions the Soviet Union could exploit for its own advantage? Did the Soviets have ambitions to undo the new global peace, much as fascism and economic instability had undone the peace of Versailles? And then there was the shadow of the atomic bomb, looming over the victorious as well as the defeated. The United States might control atomic technology for the present, but what if the weapon fell into unfriendly hands? After World War II launched the atomic age, no nation, not even the United States, was safe anymore.